And I would encourage you to take out your Bible. To open it to the book of first Peter. And to chapter three, as we continue our study through this marvelous little letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter. For those of you that have been with us, you'll remember. But if you're new this morning, it's a letter written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who are undergoing difficult times, tough times, precisely because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Their situation is like that which we saw portrayed this morning and like we are hearing about millions of our brothers and sisters around the world. They are paying a cost for their faith in Jesus Christ. They find themselves aliens and strangers, people who are on the run because of persecution or others who may be still in their own hometown, but they are aliens and strangers there because they've been ostracized because of their faith in Christ. And Peter is writing to them with important teaching to help them survive and to thrive in a difficult and a hostile world. Which, by the way, for them in coming years will get even worse for them. This letter calls for them to live honorably as God's people, even in an ungodly world. I doubt that very many of us can even begin to fathom what it is to live under persecution as our brothers and sisters in Christ do around the world and as these were in that day. But we can imagine that it must be extremely hard when the world out there is difficult and the world out there is hostile. But as we come here to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, the passage before us turns our attention from the world out there and turns our attention to the world in here, specifically the world in our homes, calling us to live godly in our homes, but raising before us the question, what happens when that difficult, hostile world is not out there as much as it is in here, in our home. That's the situation before us in this passage. It's a situation I know some of you can identify with, because I've heard it from some of you. And I'm sure there are others from whom I have not heard it who are struggling in silence with difficulty, hostility at home. Even perhaps precisely because of your faith in Jesus Christ. We are to live honorably as God's people even in our homes when the struggle and the difficulty is there. The instructions before us here today in chapter 3 are for wives and husbands. And the section that is before us this morning is really not a treatise. It's not really a manual on marriage. Some of you were around a few months ago. We were in Ephesians chapter 5, which really is a manual on marriage. 
This is really different. It's primarily dealing with problems, with real problems that likely a good number of Peter's original readers, the original recipients of this letter, real problems that they had faced. You see, people had become believers in Jesus Christ. Many of them apart from their spouses. So they are spiritually single in a house of a couple. It's created problems, as I said. Many of you understand that. It's why the body of Christ is so important that we are here where we can join together and comfort one another and encourage one another and lift one another up. Problem, you see, when, when one becomes a believer and the other is not, it can create immense problems in the home. Then, as now today, in many of these same countries where Christians are persecuted, when one spouse becomes a believer and the other is not, the person, the one who is not a believer can cause great difficulty. They can ridicule, they can belittle their spouse because of their faith. They can make fun of them. They can torment them, mistreat them, beat them, ostracize them, kick them out of the house, divorce them, or even kill them. And in many countries today, that not only is not frowned upon, it is encouraged. So, It's not so far removed from this letter from what some people are enduring this very day. In the world at that time, as Peter addresses here, he's going to address wives and address husbands. As Peter addresses the wives in the world at that time, women had really very few options. See, In Jewish culture, as well as in Greek culture and in Roman culture, the husband ruled the home. Women were considered essentially property. And the husband, men could pretty much do what they willed in the home. And the women had very little recourse. And then along comes the gospel And the teaching of Christianity. And as we've been studying in this book of 1 Peter, we have seen a number of truths presented here. That the very fact that we as believers in Jesus Christ, all of us, both men and women, we are, as we've seen, we have been chosen by God. We are His chosen people. We are His children. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, people who have a glorious destiny, an eternal future in heaven, heirs with Christ. We are a free people. And it's very likely, from what I gather from Peter's second letter to these folks, that they had access to Paul's writings, and so they may very well have heard what Paul taught in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. 
For we are all one in Christ. We are equal as men and women in Christ. And so what is a Christian woman to do in that day or in some of these cultures today? What are they to do with this newfound identity and this newfound status? What Paul has to say in that situation, while it isn't really necessarily, again, a treatise on marriage, it does have as well profound application and implications to us today in freedom and in marriages here. But we need to as well see it through the lens of what these people were enduring. What is a Christian woman, a Christian wife to do in that situation. The same as what Ephesians chapter 5 calls wives to do. The same as what Colossians 3 says. Likewise, verse 1, wives be subject to your own husbands. Submit to your husbands. Again, we covered this subject a little bit, uh, not a little bit extensively, a couple of months ago, and you're welcome to go back and listen to that if you want in our study in Ephesians 5 and 6. We need to just look at this again very quickly. Submit to your husband. Be subject to them. Submit. It's a military term to rank yourself under, to put yourself under authority, under leadership. And I note that it is voluntary. It is a reflexive Term here, you are to submit yourself. You are to place yourself under this authority. Someone once said, some woman once said, give your husband an inch and he'll think he's a ruler. (laughs) That's a very real risk. (laughs) And so why should a Christian woman submit to her husband? Well, because it says so. That's perhaps a good enough reason. But I want us to notice that what's the first word of that verse? Likewise, or some of your translations, in the same way, in the same manner. What it does here, in in the same way, the instructions of husbands in a few minutes, uses that same word. Both of them are sending us where? Back to what just came before this. What just came before this, look back, it's in the end of chapter 2, it's where we were last week. And it says there in chapter 2, it says, For to this, verse 21, you, believer in Jesus Christ, to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in His steps. What we realize is we have been called to follow Jesus' example. To walk in His steps. He suffered innocently in our place entrusting Himself to His Father's care for a purpose, for the purpose of saving us and bringing us to God. Jesus suffered for the purpose of bringing us to Him. If we even back up just a little bit farther in the text, we find in chapter 2, verse 9, another thing there. You see, what we're discovering is, why are we here? What is God's purpose for us? 
We've been called to follow in Jesus' steps. He came to save us. Go back to verse 9, and it tells us why we are here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His, for God's own possession, that you may, here it is, proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Why are you here? What is God's purpose for your life? Well, obviously, God's purpose for our life is to make us happy. That's His big desire for you and me, right? No, because if that was His big desire for you and me, then the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what would happen? We'd be instantly, boom, teleported to heaven because there is joy forevermore and no sorrow, no pain, no suffering, no tears. How many of you have had tears in the last year? Suffering, pain. If God's desire is our happiness, we wouldn't be here. His purpose for us here is a mission. Jesus came, He suffered, so we could follow in His steps, so that we might be saved. And why has God left us here? So we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light, so we can proclaim that message to a lost world, so other people will hear and be saved. That's why we're here. Why is that important? Because, brothers and sisters, The commands that he's been giving us in this text, in the verses before that, and in this section here on marriage, is he's giving them to us so that we will live honorably in this world so that we can declare the message and people will listen. Now, wives, submit to your husband. Why? The verse goes on, so that even if some, some husbands, do not obey the word. See, the question is, do I really have to submit to my husband when he's an unbeliever? Do I have to submit to my husband when he's an ungodly man? When he doesn't care about what God says, he won't obey God's word. The answer is the wife's submission is not conditioned on the husband being good, godly, wise, loving, considerate, or even being a Christian. Matter of fact, here it is precisely because he may not be a believer that we need to be especially submissive. Hmm. So that even an unbelieving or ungodly husband might come to faith. He goes on. It says, the question might be, how do we do that? How do we reach a stubborn, ornery, ill-tempered, Obstinate man for Jesus. The answer is here. First thing, gives a little hint, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Here's what God wants for wives to submit to their husbands and, secondly, to be beautifully attractive So attractive that an unbelieving husband might be one to Christ without a word, he says. That's not saying that you never, a wife never ever shares the gospel with her husband. Not saying that a wife never ever can mention Christ. 
never says that she's just to be mute and never say anything. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, to put it in a common vernacular, don't be a nag. Someone once said, and I think they're right, no husband will ever be nagged into heaven. Does that really, will this really work? That they will be one, not, not so much by our words, but by our life. Lee Strobel, some of you know who he is, well-known Christian author. Lee Strobel was an avowed atheist who mocked Christians. His wife came in and stunned him one day with an announcement that she had become a follower of Jesus Christ. And he said his thought was, this is the end of our marriage. His thought, I'm going to have to divorce her. Over time, he says, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way that she related to me and to the children. He says it was winsome, it was attractive, and it made me want to check things out. And check it out, he did. It took him on a two-year journey, if you've read his story or know his story. Ultimately, he became a believer in Jesus Christ and one of the most foremost staunch apologists of the Christian faith in our day. There's no guarantee that a husband will respond to the testimony of a wife. But the most powerful tool that a wife has to influence a man for Christ is not her words, but a consistent godly life. And the text goes on to give us six attractive qualities that it encourages women to have and to develop and to grow in their life. He says that they may, that the husbands, the unbelieving husband may see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful conduct. They may see in their wives, first of all, their respect for God. God has first place in their life and in their heart. Because of that, they have respect towards authority. They have respect towards other people. But most especially, it shows up in the way that they respect and value and admire and appreciate their husband. And I might add, even when, especially when, they don't get that from their husband. Praise and encouragement towards your husband will yield far greater and far more positive results than being critical and belittling and sarcastic and all those other things we are tempted to do, aren't we, when life is difficult. The reality is most men are terribly insecure and they are hungry for words and encouragement and praise and most especially from their wives. What a tremendous impact that might have. Respectful conduct and pure conduct, moral purity, loyalty to your husband and your family, despite what a difficult man he might be. Integrity in your dealings, purity in your speech, no lies, no slander, no gossip. Kindness and grace in your treatment of others, in your treatment of your family, in your treatment of your husband. The purity of your conduct. He moves on, verse 3. 
Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. You've probably noticed we live in a world that is fixated on external beauty. And especially through media and social media, the pressure today to girls and women to conform to popular and I would say even unrealistic standards of beauty, it is immense. It is for many, it is discouraging, depressing, debilitating. But that concept of focusing on external beauty is nothing new. It was like that in, in the Roman world, in the Roman culture, two millennia ago. Two thousand years ago, archaeologists and historians tell us that, that women of that day, it was all about the hair. You know, just seeing how, high you, how you could fancy you could braid it, how high you could pile it, how much jewelry you could put in it. It was all about the jewelry you could wear and the clothes, the finery of the clothes you had. And it was all about displaying physical beauty in that. It was all about makeup. I mean, they were into dyeing hair. They were into makeup. It was all, everything we see today was then. really isn't new. But God says then, as He says today, ladies, don't let external beauty be your focus. May I say now, one reason he says that is that it's not that um, physical beauty inevitably fades. I noticed years ago that permanents aren't permanent. I never, I never quite figured out that term. I see that Botox has to be continually reapplied. <laughs> And plastic surgeries can correct things and make things look better, but it can't stop the continuing progression of age. The reality is that beauty fades. Physical beauty fades. But inner beauty, it says here, is imperishable. It's lasting. Matter of fact, it not only doesn't fade, it can grow as time goes on. So he says, aim for inner beauty, not external beauty. By the way, he also says, internal beauty, inner beauty is precious. Matter of fact, very precious in God's eyes. So he says, dress to impress God. It's not about the clothes, it's not about the makeup, it's not about the hair, it's about character. Now, by the way, I have to say, qualifier here, this doesn't say that fixing your hair is bad. doesn't say, ladies, you need to reach up there right now and go, just mess it up, I don't want to look too prissy here today or something. No, it doesn't say that wearing jewelry is wrong. It doesn't say that nice clothes are bad. It doesn't say here that we need to dress as drab and as frumpy as we can, you know. Personally, I think that as God's children, 
That God calls us, as Scripture actually calls us, to be good stewards. And I think that applies to every blessing we receive from God. I think that should apply to our homes, our cars, our, our space. We are to take as good a care of it and make, as, make it as nice as we can. Not to be over-obsessed with it, but to, to treat our things, our stuff well. And that applies to the bodies God gave us. We're to do the best we can with what we got. Some of us don't have much to start with. But it's a gift of God. Make the best of it. That's, I think, biblical. So it's not about, it's not bad to look good. But our main focus should be inner beauty. And he gives us two more character qualities here to aim at. Let your beauty, say, be the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Ladies, gentleness, meekness, tenderness, caring for others. And a quiet spirit. Quiet spirit doesn't mean that you never say anything, you're mute. A quiet spirit isn't referring to anything about what we say, the better, a better translation will be tranquil or calm. In other words, someone who is not angry, someone who is not irritable, someone who is not frantic, hectic, someone who is in chaos all the time. It's a quiet spirit. These are wonderful qualities and gifts from God moves on. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter gives women here an example to follow. He calls you to look back to the Old Testament and take note of the Old Testament women heroes. The godly women of old whose great beauty was their character. And he zeroes in and specifically names Sarah. Of Abraham and Sarah. We go back to the book of Genesis and you read her story. and You discover there that several times Sarah is described as beautiful. Apparently stunningly so. Still so beautiful at, in her 60s. And then even later in her 80s, that kings desire to have her as their wife. So much so, they would be willing to kill to get her. This lady was a looker. But that is not why she is admired in Scripture. That's why Peter picks her out here. She was known for her looks, but that's not why she's admired and that's not why she's exalted here on the page. It's as we go through Genesis and we look at her story, her and Abraham's story played out on the page of Scripture. She also was not, they were not some little, you know, plaster statue, some make-believe person. There's real people who failed big and succeeded big. Here's what she was known for. He says, verse 5, she hoped in God. She hoped in God as she faithfully submitted to and followed her husband Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees to this strange land that they had never seen, the land of Canaan, of Palestine. 
She followed him through good times and hard times. She followed him even when he was foolish and wrong. See, says she called him Lord, meaning she submitted to him. I don't think you can, she really never directly calls him Lord in the text. The implication is that it was the attitude. All right, God put you in charge, I'm following you. But it didn't stop there. It says she hoped in God. That's what gets our attention. Two more attractive qualities to hear for women that uh, he brings out of Sarah's story. First, he says, you are her children when you do good. When you do good, when you do what is right. It's a phrase that's used here seven times, actually, in this little letter. Peter likes it. It's about folks who are out there doing what is right, doing what God calls us to do, and being full of good works. That's an attractive quality. And secondly, he says that they are, they do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, back to the story of Sarah. See, I've noticed this. Uh, the, the NIV, by the way, translates this as do not give way to fear. I love that translation. Don't be alarmed by the what ifs of life. I've noticed in my 66 years on this planet that all of us fear at times, but women tend to have a greater propensity to worry about the what ifs of life. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if the car breaks down? What if we get sick? What happens if we lose everything? What happens if you lose your job? What happens if, you know, what if the house catches fire? What if this, what? There's a tendency for that. I'm not saying that's a bad tendency. I'm just saying it's the reality, okay? Here's what he says, though. They don't give way to fear. And I realize that in this context especially, it takes great faith to submit to a husband when your tendency is to worry about the what-ifs. And we know how foolish husbands are. We know how short-sighted husbands are. We know how careless husbands are. We know, right? I mean, we can just go on down the list. And they take such risks. It takes great faith to submit, especially, especially to an ungodly man. Again, back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus obeyed the Father. He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly, even as His path, the path the Father called Him to take, took Him through suffering. Jesus entrusted Himself to the Father. And that's exactly what Sarah is commended for doing here. She is called to follow her husband even though the man is a fool. (laughs) Even though the man is, you know, whatever. And she follows, but she doesn't just follow blindly. She follows entrusting herself to God. Ladies, many of the ladies in our world today are caught in situations with 
ungodly husbands, unbelieving husbands, even as people of that day were. And many of them have no outlets, no recourse other than death. And yet God calls them to submit to their husbands. And yet what he has placed before them here is a way to make an impact Even as a person who is powerless, they can have a powerful impact by doing these things. And most significant of all is saying, there's nothing else I can do here but trust God. And what a mighty, powerful testimony that is. Matter of fact, I would say it is probably the most powerful testimony that can be of faith. I love that. Well, quickly, we've got to turn to the men. Women, you had the harder road here and the tougher, the tougher challenges, which is why Peter takes more time. Because these aren't words that are meant to control women, but to free you and to encourage you. The men, in the same way, likewise, he talks to you. Likewise, because Christ submitted himself for our benefit. Husbands, we have one word, one verse here. And we are to do what we are called to do here, not because of the wife's behavior, not because uh, she treats us well, not because, not whether or not she's a believer in Christ, because she may not be. But here the husband is to do what's called, what God calls him to do. And there's two big instructions. God simply says to both husband and wife, do your part, irrespective of what the other does. Husbands, number instruction number one. I guess I should read the verse. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, like Christ, be willing to suffer for your wife, be willing to suffer to treat her well and to treat her rightly, to do what is good. Like Christ gave up His own agenda, we give up ours for our wife. That's where it begins, likewise. Then we are to live with our wives. Divorce in that day was rampant, just like in our day. I think the first implication of this live with your wife is simply don't divorce or bail out of marriage like unbelievers do. Christian men, we stick it out. We love our wives, even if it's difficult, even if it's tough. But even more... That, that, that little phrase, live with, in English, like with the Greek here, it implies more than just being under the same roof. It's living with. It, it implies an intentional connectedness with her. Make effort to connect with your wife relationally, emotionally. And it's significant that he tells that to us men, because us men, we are not inclined to that, are we? As we stay silent. (laughs) Is this a trick question? (laughs) No. Live with her in an understanding way. Literally, that phrase is according to knowledge. In other words, as husbands, we are to know our wives, to study them, to understand them, their needs, their desires, their fears, their hopes, so we can treat her with sensitivity and with care. This phrase also, according to knowledge, well, that's the primary application, I think, is we need to know our wives and, and to understand them and, and deal sensitively with them. The, the phrase also, 
I think, has overtones of the knowledge that we now have as believers in Jesus Christ. Knowledge we now have of God, of who God is, of what God's Word says, and so it, how that impacts what we are to be and what we are to do as godly husbands. We are to live with our wives according to knowledge in an understanding way. The second command and, and instruction here is that we are to give honor, show honor to the woman. That word honor means to highly value, to regard, to esteem as precious. And by the way, these words would be absolutely shocking in the first century. The command in the first century to the wives to submit to their husbands would be, yeah, so what else is new? <laughs> but this one is the one that would get a preacher killed. Today it's the opposite. <laughs> Give honor to the woman. Ray Pritchard, Dr. Ray Pritchard, wise, wisely wrote, People tend to live up or down to our expectations. If we offer repeated praise and affirmation, the person responds by living up to it. So giving honor is a choice a husband makes or should make. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And a wise husband repeatedly reminds his wife that she is a good thing. Three reasons are given here why wives, women deserve our honor. The first, he says, give them honor as the weaker vessel. Now, by the way, notice very carefully, it calls the wife the weaker vessel, not the weak vessel. Did you notice that? Weaker is a comparative term. If it's comparative, it has to compare to something else. So what is it comparing to? The wife is the weaker vessel, so something is the weak vessel. What would that be? Hmm? Pray tell. That is a very subtle little thing there in the text to remind us men that we are to be humble. Because we are not all that strong. We are simply not even all that Hmm. Humility here. Give honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. How are women weaker? Well, I think two aspects of what that means. First of all, physically. We are in a world right now that wants to say that there is no difference between men and women. People with common sense understand that, yes, not every woman is weaker than every man. There are some women who are stronger than some men. But overall, generally, men are bigger and stronger than women. You can't say that very loud in our culture or people go nuts. But it's common sense because it's reality. Women are weaker. Because of that, they are much more subject to be taken advantage of. Secondly, women are weaker positionally here because God has called the wives to submit to their husband. By the way, it says to their own husbands. Nowhere in the Bible does it call for women to submit to other husbands, other men in general. 
And nowhere in the Bible, by the way, does it tell husbands to bring their wives into submission. Make your wife submit. It's as we said earlier, it's a voluntary thing. That is an abuse of the Scripture. But here, women are positionally called to submit to their husband's leadership in their home. And that puts them in a weaker position. And so for those two reasons, women are weaker. And what that means is, as you apply it here, they are, to, they are deserving of our honor. Jesus noted in Matthew chapter 20 that the Gentiles, the unbelievers out there, abuse authority. The person who is in authority uses their authority to oppress those under his authority for his benefit. That's what sinful authority does. Godly authority is different than that. Always different than that. Godly authority exists for the benefit of those under its care. And it expends itself for their good. When any authority does not act in that manner, that is not godly authority. That is ungodly authority. And so godly husbands work for the benefit and the care of their wife or any who is under their care who are weak. Because women are in the position of weakness, they are not to be trampled upon, not to be treated as servants or property, but rather they are to be highly valued, highly treasured, esteemed as precious. They are to be protected and they are to be provided for. That's what used to be called chivalry, but it long predated chivalry. It is Bible. Esteemed with honor because they are weaker the vessel very quickly. Esteemed with honor next because it says here that since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, they are co-heirs so they are not inferior. Men have no greater standing before God than women. So treat them, men, as your companion, as your colleague, not as your subservient. They are partners in this physical life. We go back to Genesis 1. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Equal status before God. Genesis chapter 2, we find that God says, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Someone, that word suitable means the complement, the completer. Men are incomplete without the woman. And he says, Men, you're incomplete without the woman. You are blessed to have a partner in life, one who is equal in standing before God and who is a complement to you, but who by God's design is under your authority in your home because somebody has to run first chair and God often chooses the weak and the foolish to do his tasks. I've always known, we've always known that women are more competent than men. In many things are they not. Perhaps in most things. They are co-heirs in this physical life, but more than that, they are co-heirs in eternal life. The inheritance that women have in heaven will not be second rate. And we dare not treat lightly those who will be equally honored in heaven. Lastly, Peter ends this section with a very strong warning to husbands as a motivation He says, do this so your prayers will not be hindered. If a man does not live with his wife in an understanding way, if he does not honor her, his prayers will be ineffective. They will hit the ceiling and bounce back. By the way, I firmly believe that a man cannot be in a close relationship with God if he does not pray 
So what that tells me is that if a man does not treat his wife properly, he is not only not in a good relationship with his wife, he is not in a good relationship with God. Because God cares about how we treat our wives. Again, this section, not the manual on marriage, but is addressing very real problems in that day, very real problems in our day, has great application to us. Things that are hard for all of us to do, men and women, but by God's grace, may we seek to put it into practice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. doesn't always tell us what we want to hear doesn't always tell us things that are easy to listen to, but it always speaks the truth. We are grateful for that. We confess, Father, that as husbands, so often we fail. As husbands, we have not been the men that we are to be. We have not loved our wives as we ought. We have not honored them as we ought. We have at times mistreated them. Father, may that change this day. Convict us where we need convicting. And change us where we need changing. Father, we confess as women we have not always been what we ought as wives. Father, I pray that you will convict where conviction is needed. Encourage where there is discouragement. Father, may we also, may these things also instruct young people who are not yet married the importance of being godly men and women in marriage, the importance of marrying a believer rather than find themselves saddled to an unbeliever and great problems that come there. So, Father God, we thank You again for Your Word. Ask Your grace to help us put it into shoe leather in this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.